In last week's episode, we took a journey back to the Gilded Age and the Bella Puck to look at the life of soprano superstar Lillian Nordica. Lillian came from rural Maine and went on to become one of the greatest and most admired opera stars of her time. My show last week gave Lillian's story, and I know you'll agree it was quite a tale. This week, I'm pleased and honored to present a bonus second part to the story, a look at Lillian's life through the eyes of a very modern opera singer, international mezzo-soprano Kate Aldrich, who, like Lillian Nordica and me, the Gilded Gentleman, comes from the New England state of Maine. Kate gives us her interpretation of how a singer of today would interpret Lillian's career, and she gives us very special insight into her own performing life around the world today. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks, I'll take you beyond the glitter and the gold to have a look at the style, architecture, history, and culture in America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Kate Aldrich is one of today's foremost mezzo-sopranos on the international opera stage, Her career has taken her from New York's Metropolitan Opera to the opera houses of Paris, Munich, Vienna, Barcelona, Buenos Aires, and Lisbon, to name only a few. Her work has included appearances at the world-famous Salzburg Festival and at the Rossini Festival in Pesaro, Italy. In addition, she has appeared in the Summer Festival at the Great Roman Amphitheater, the Arena di Verona in Verona, Italy, which she discusses with us today. Her roles have included a wide range in the mezzo-soprano repertoire, from Mozart's Cherubino in The Marriage of Figaro and Rossina in The Barber of Seville, to Verdi's Eboli in Don Carlo, Adelgisa in Norma, Octavian in Der Rosenkavalier, and a rarity she discusses with us today, the role of Fides in Meyerbeer's epic grand opera, Le Prophète. Kate is one of today's foremost interpreters of the role of Bizet's Carmen and was called the Carmen of this generation following her debut with the San Francisco Opera. Kate joins me here today to discuss her career, her roles, what the life of a modern opera singer is really like, and her thoughts on the life of Lillian Nordica. Kate, I am so grateful to you for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule, and I am so honored that you have joined me today on The Gilded Gentleman. Oh, I'm happy to be here, and it's really nice to have this chance to talk with you. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I really wanted to have you on the show not only given your main roots, but also to take a look at the life of Lillian Nordica from the point of view of another international singer. So that's where I'd like to really jump in and start. So Lillian Nordica sang an incredibly extensive repertoire from the high light coloratura roles, things like Lucia de Lammermoor and Mozart's Queen of the Night. She also did some more in the mezzo repertoire, things like Carabino and of course, Carmen, which is one of your great signature roles. And then She became one of the great Wagnerian sopranos of the time with her Brunhildes and and Isoldes. 
So, Kate, it seems like most singers really stick to one sort of vocal role, but that wasn't certainly what she did. And it seems even in the 19th century, that wasn't what happened. Can you sort of respond to how she chose her roles and what she sang? Well, I I mean, what I am not totally sure about is if she sang Carabino around the same time that she would have been singing the Wagnerian roles, which I kind of imagine it was sort of in succession. She started with the Carabinos, Rosina. Yeah. Moved into the Carmen's and moved into some Verdi repertoire and then into the Wagner later in her career. Is, it, is that correct? Yes. So is that because a singer's voice is changing and maturing? Well, yeah. And, and in fact, that's actually not so uncommon. Ah. And it's usually it's a little extreme to go from Carabino to Wagnerian soprano. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have a progression as our voice matures and as it's not just about the instrument becoming more in shape or more tuned in to being able to do more repertoire. It's also a question of as we mature, our body just has an ability to support a different kind of singing. And sometimes we lose some of the agility as well, and we become a little more dramatic. So I can see how that would happen. And in fact, my career has not been so, so different than that. I mean, I started singing, I did sing Carabino early on. I sang a lot of Rosinas, and then I started moving into the Carmen's and the midweight lyrical stuff. And now I'm starting to move into some Verdi and some bigger stuff. So it's not so uncommon, I would say. I find that just so fascinating. And Lillian trained in in what seems to be a very classic way in the bel canto style. First of all, can you define for listeners just what bel canto was and is? Sure. Bel canto literally means beautiful singing. And so it was a way of training the voice that was in about showing off the beauty of the voice. So the voice was the forefront instrument within the opera. So the orchestra was really there to support the voice and the voice was what was supposed to really be telling the story. And you would think most operas must be that way, but it's not necessarily true. I mean, if you go into some of the late 1800s, early 1900s operas, it's really a combination of the orchestra and the singer. Mm-hmm. But Bill Clint was really sort of almost an accompaniment by the orchestra of the voice. It seems like that was so much of the training of the the 19th century was from this bel canto tradition. And even now, to be honest, I have to say, even now, I think that's the primary way that we're trained, especially as we're getting our start. And it seems like, at least in Lillian's case, it was a question of singing scales and scales and scales for months and months and frankly, years before she even tackled an aria or or certainly even a role. Is that still true? Do you, is that the bel canto training? How do you define that for a singer today? It doesn't seem to be the same way we do it these days. And I, and I do wonder if that is a mistake. We can't know because there, I don't think there's anyone that's still training in that way, although there may be. I think it's a wonderful way to get the voice working. The problem is I think we get bored and the singer wants to start expressing and telling the story and, and speeding up the whole process. And I think in general, opera singers' lives are much more on speed in a certain sense, as opposed to the way it used to be, because of the fact that we can jump on a plane and sing a performance the day after having a rehearsal in a completely different country. In those days, it wasn't the case. You would be jumping on a cruise ship and you would have all the time on the cruise ship to be studying. They also spent time working for months and months with the conductor of an opera that they they were preparing. So they spent a lot more time digging into a role and digging into the singing technique for that role. And I that's something that I really envy. And I think most singers feel that same way. We get very little time with the conductor just because everyone's running and 
coming to and from their last gig. But doesn't that take or put a tremendous amount of pressure on a, a singer physically as well as I always yeah. think being a singer, we're talking about a couple little muscles right down here, right? Yeah. And and Very it's so, yeah, tied to your whole physical well-being. How does a modern singer, how do you handle all of that with the travel and and yet you have to get up and sing beautifully in front of thousands of people? Well, it's it's extremely stressful. I think we have to be extremely mindful of our body as an instrument, much more so than in the previous century. I mean, I, I don't know. I think we are under a, a lot more stress and we put we have the extra pressure of the fact that there is now YouTube and recordings that end up on the Internet. So you may be vocally tired because you just sipped in from a performance that you did in New York and now you started rehearsals in Paris and then you're going right into performances and your voice is still tired say you have a bad night, it ends up on YouTube. And these are things that can directly impact your career. So, you know, people always talk about the diva behavior and what a diva is. And of course, I do think that there are some divas out there who put on certain airs. But I think we all are under so much pressure and stress that sometimes people are so paranoid about this little instrument and these two little muscles that we get very defensive for it. Lillian was certainly considered a diva back in her day. It seems so. It seems that she was very much a diva. The, what I've read online, she seems like a very, she had the air. <laughs> well, and I think people expected that. And, you know, today you hear the the term diva sort of bandied about. What do you think the difference was between a diva as it was interpreted in Lillian's day and what we think of it today? I mean, does it even exist today? I think it's come to be sort of a derogatory term in a lot of ways, especially within the industry. If someone says, oh, she's such a diva, it can mean something sort of negative. But I don't think it was meant to be that way. And I think there is a larger than life element to being an opera singer. I don't think that necessarily is something we take home at night and that we wake up with in the morning. It's almost like a another character that we're putting on of ourselves as the opera singer. And it's not fake, but it's just your the what you're presenting to the world. Absolutely. Now, it's interesting because you and Lillian, it, although you have very different voices, there was a little bit of overlap in some of the roles that you sang. You, you of course, one of the great interpreters of Carmen. She sang it, not very much, but she did sing it. She sang Rossina and Barbieri. Also, she sang Prophet, uh, you know, an opera that is not done very much, and you've certainly sung in that. Can you talk a little bit about what goes into preparing a role for the opera stage? Because this is not just like an actor learning lines here. There's a whole okay. process. Can you talk about where you start to learn a role and how it evolves? Yeah, I think um, everyone has their process and the way that they do it, their method. My process usually begins with obviously getting the score, sitting down with it and I like to highlight my part so that I can sort of see where I fit within the different scenes and just so I can know, okay, act one, I have a duet and an aria and another aria. And in act two, I hardly sing it all in act three. So you can start thinking about how you're going to economize the voice. Then I translate if I need to translate, if it's a language I don't speak well. And then I like to listen, listen, listen for a while. Different recordings, hear different interpretations of the past. If they're available, which to be honest, a lot of the French operas that I do do not have recordings because I do a lot of rare French repertoire. But if there are recordings, that's a very useful tool. We're so lucky in our generation that we have this tool. And I don't think singers should be shy to use that tool. 
And then I start working on it. Sometimes I will just decide to stick with act one until I have it really understood of how it affects me vocally, how it fits in my voice. But I do not ever try to memorize. I give myself enough time that I know I will need to have it become natural. So memorization for me, it's very important that memorization for me is not about syllables that I'm memorizing that go with the tune. For me, it has to be about the fusion of the character with the accompaniment. Not even a, I wouldn't even say accompaniment. I would say with the orchestration, because if we're talking about a fusion, how they come together and how that tells the story and what is my part within that and being really authentic with the words in the text and the deeper meaning of the character. And that, for me, actually helps me memorize more quickly than if I try to memorize by sounds. Now, is that a process that you work with coaches on, or is this something where you are alone in a practice room? How does this process yeah. happen? No, this is first. This is all in the practice room or at my home or just in front of the piano. Then you get in front of the coach and you start working it with your coach and or teacher. But definitely, I would say definitely a coach. A coach almost becomes more important the more experienced you become and the more the deeper you go into your career, just because they have such a wealth of information of how to interpret and what you want to say. And then they know how the voice works and they know how your voice works. So they give you some tools to make it more effective and more beautiful. And so with the coach, you would want to do, depending on the size of the role, anywhere from two hours to 10 hours. Like a, a role like Norma, for example, would require many, many, many hours. A role, a smaller role in uh, I don't know, in a obscure French opera, you might be able to cover everything in three hours. So we're talking about a process that really takes months here, right? From the time you first look yeah. at a role. I mean, this isn't something you, you know, learn in singing. Like I said, it depends on the role. For example, Profet. I started that. Thank God I started <laughs> that. <laughs> and I started a lot earlier than I usually do because I think I had some free time and I knew I wasn't going to have free time later right before the job. So I started maybe three months before. And as I was working on it, I realized, thank gosh, <laughs> that I started this now because it was that was a very long process. It's a, it's a monster of a role. It's incredibly technically difficult. Also a role like Carmen, for example, you want to start early because it's so iconic that you have to find your interpretation within that opera that everyone knows. And you really want to take the time it needs to get that down. Plus there's spoken dialogue, so you have to work on your French. Those are roles that take a lot of time. I definitely want to talk to you about Carmen, and we'll get to that in a couple okay. of more questions. But I want to stick with this notion of, of French opera, and particularly the Paris opera, because Lillian Nordica finally made her debut at the Paris opera in, in 1882, and you too have sung at the Paris opera. What for a 19th century singer, and probably even into the 20th century, did it mean to make your debut at the Paris opera? That seems like that was a major thing. What was that about? I mean, that would be incredibly huge. It's, it was at the time, and even now is one of the most important opera houses, but at the time, I, I almost would dare say it was even more important then than it is now. So it would have been incredibly, incredibly important for her career, for sure. So I think this is an interesting subject we're sort of getting into about the idea of going to Europe for training. And certainly, 
in the 19th century, again, into the 20th century for American singers, it was almost essential that one did that, partly because there wasn't necessarily the training here, but also there was this attitude that, well, if you have come back from Europe, you certainly have a certain star quality. Can you talk about that issue? Because when you and I were chatting the other day, you talked about you went to Italy early on in your career and studied and coached and performed. Can you talk about that balance? Yeah. I mean, it, the the two worlds, at least now, are incredibly different in terms of training. I think here there's a lot of emphasis on the technical stuff, the how the voice works and getting your technique down, which is great. But then I think what you benefit from in Europe is not only the languages, because of course nowadays in the U.S. you can learn the other languages, but you're really not going to get the right inflection or the what they call the cantilena, which is the way the language sort of lilts within a voice. And being on site, so to speak, is a totally different experience. When I made my debut, I made my debut at the Arena di Verona, which was an insane, insane way to start your career. Well, it's a I, big place. <laughs> it's huge. And I was, I was a baby. I knew nothing. And I, I didn't even know when I was offered the job what I was walking into. And the reason I was offered the job was I was singing. I was a young artist at the Pittsburgh Opera. And the artistic director at the time had come to give us a masterclass. And he liked my voice and said, you know, have you ever looked at the role of Preziosilla in La Forza del... And we can't say the full title because it's considered bad luck. And I don't want to have... We won't do that. It's like the Scottish play, right? We won't do that. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And I said, no, I've never looked at that role. I'll, I'll have to take a look. And so I checked it out of the library and I looked at it and I sang through it and I went back and said, yeah, it's a nice fit. It should, it's, I'll, I'll definitely study this role. And he said, OK, well, I'll have my secretary send you the contract. It's three performances in August. And, <laughs> and I was baffled. I just suddenly was offered this job sight unseen. And then I went to some people and said, do you know La Reina di Verona? Do you know anything about this theater? And they're like, are you kidding me? Of course we do. And so that was I was in way over my head when I arrived. I started doing a few rehearsals and the pianist kind of looked at me like, uh-huh, well, you have a beautiful voice, but uh, there's some things that we need to work on with the Italian. And I really think there was a period of time where I risked being fired or removed from the production. I'm sure of it. But I was doing these coachings almost every single day and she was wonderful, this, this woman who helped me, this coach at, in the arena. And I practiced every day and I worked with her and I just focused on the Italian style, the Verdi style. And I was surrounded by people speaking Italian. And this was in a time where you couldn't just, you know, go online to book your hotel. You had to call the hotel. So you had to know enough Italian to get by. So my Italian as a spoken language became much better. And I managed to go to my first musical run through with my cast. And the conductor was very, very happy. And he turned to the rest of the cast. And these are all famous seasoned Italian singers. And he said, now this is someone who comes prepared. This is what you all should be doing. Perfecto. I felt like the teacher <laughs> there. I was a little embarrassed, but I was thrilled because it meant that the work that I had done had paid off. And this is why I, this is a long way of me saying why it's so important to work on a language in the country. And do you think there's a big difference between singers that actually speak languages fluently in how they develop a role in characterizations? Because I know you're fluent in Italian and French and maybe others I don't know, but that's important, correct? 
It's absolutely, it's fundamental. I think when you don't know, to speak Italian, you don't know how long an article should be, for example. You don't know how long a vowel should be. And these are like minuscule differences, but it makes all the difference in the language sounding real and authentic. And these operas were written to be sung in those languages. So if, you, if the language isn't perfectly done, then the music doesn't come off the page as well. Probably particularly in Italian, right? It particularly, well, also French. Oh, yeah. Really French, especially in, in a lot of ways, French almost more so. And so with that, we are going to take a short break and we'll be back to continue our look behind the velvet curtains of today's opera world. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm joined today by international mezzo-soprano Kate Aldrich. So Lillian was almost a star not long after she made her Italian debut. Was there a moment in your career when you just thought, wow, I think I really made it? There were a couple moments that I thought, wow, this is... This is starting to really come together. I don't know that there was a one moment. There were a few little moments, like, for instance, when I, because of having been at, also at Pittsburgh, I have to, I have to be thankful for Pittsburgh. Um, Renata Scotto ah. came and did a masterclass for us there. And she liked me. And Franco Zaffirelli was looking for a young cast of young singers to do a filmed version of Aida in Buceto, which was his, which was Verdi's town, hometown. And it was going to be televised live and we were going to make a DVD and he wanted all young singers. And Scotto had recommended me to Zafirelli. And when I arrived, when I got the audition and I, I got the role, I arrived in Buceto and they had hired, I don't know, three or four different singers for each role. So then we realized it was sort of like, you know, an American Idol version of <laughs> putting together an opera where we were just, it was, it was one of the most amazing, magical, but terrifying times of my life. We were all fighting for the recording. Everyone was going to get to perform, but everyone wanted the recording. And so I ended up getting the recording. And that was a moment where I thought, oh, the other, the other thing that happened from that was, um, La Scala called my agent after having seen me perform and wanted me to come to audition at La Scala. And so that then I knew that things were really starting to happen. But then, you know, it was complicated because I was doing Aida and Amneris, the, which is the role I was singing, was not necessarily a role that I would sing in a regular sized opera house. And so people were a little confused with how to hire me. So there was kind of a little lull of trying to figure out repertoire. And that was when I started to sing Carmen. And that was sort of the next, the next step, I think. I would say that and the Salzburg Festival, too, getting called in at the last minute to, to perform an, an opera there. That was pretty remarkable. I mean, that was a memorable moment for me just because it was so magical to be with all these incredible musicians walking around this teeny town. So I'm so anxious to talk to you about Carmen because it really is 
really a signature uh, role for you. First of all, why do you think the role in the opera Carmen is as popular as it has been since it first debuted in 1875? I've thought about this a lot because of the fact that I do this opera so much. I think it's because the themes are so current. They, they never stop being relevant. Jealousy and wanting freedom and wanting independence, but also wanting connection with a person, mental health problems. I mean, even that is something that maybe wouldn't have been looked at in that way. It would have been looked at at the time that Carmen came out, it would have been looked at, oh no, he's just a jealous, enraged lover. But I mean, we look at his character now and you can imagine if he were a real person, what would his diagnosis be? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just, there, there are fascinating things in Carmen that are always relevant. I think for me, that's the the main reason. And I think also it's a little bit scandalous. People really enjoy, you know, some of the those ideas as well. Seeing people kiss on stage, the dancing, the flamenco, the castanets, the gypsies. It's 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 thrilling. What do you think? Because there have been so many in, interpreters of Carmen, of course, over the years. What do you think is one of the keys to understanding that role and that personality that people just don't realize? Is there some secret to her? that you think is really important and you put in your interpretations? Well, I think the number one thing is she's a real authentic person. She is not living within the realm of Don Jose. I think sometimes people approach it as like she made him jealous and she did this to him. No, he's a crazy person and she is her own independent person who said from the very beginning, I want to be free and this is who I am and love is like a a wild bird and you cannot tame it and you cannot hold it down. She's told everybody from the beginning, this is who I am. Libre l'enea e libre el mura. She says she's born free and she will die free. And she says it to Don Jose right before she's going to die. Now you've sung the role many times and continue to sing it. Each time you do it, do you find something else? Do you try something else each time? Yes. I think that's um, fundamental. For me, Carmen would not be fun to do as often as I have done it without digging in and finding something new every single time. And it keeps it fresh and it keeps it alive and it keeps it interesting for me as a performer. And there's so much richness in that opera. I I was saying the last time I sang it, I was saying it's such a pity that Bizet died as young as he did, because I feel like he had so far to go. I mean, Carmen is already just such a masterpiece, but he was so young. I mean, can you imagine? Mm -hmm what he could have done. Mm -hmm. There are some vocal elements in Carmen that you're like, okay, you can see that he was still young as a composer. You know, he orchestration wise, he's a genius, but some vocal things you could tell that that he would have improved upon. And it's it's such a pity. Well, I find that with Bellini because Bellini was what in his early 30s, 31, 32, 33, you know, when he died and and created masterpieces for sure. But you think, God, what a life that was, you know, that yeah. is so young. Do you have a what you would consider a perfect role for your voice and personality, either one that you've already sung or one that you want to sing or will sing? I wouldn't say personality-wise. I think just because part of what opera singers like to do is hide behind their characters a little bit. We like to, I mean, we like to pull out elements of ourselves that we feel like sharing within a character. But I think what is so thrilling as an opera singer is to put on these these other characters and find an authentic element within ourselves of those characters. 
Vocally, however, I would say there are some roles that are just fit like a glove, like Charlotte and Werther is just a dream to sing. And I know many mezzos say the same thing and they're just, it's sort of a dream role. I would say Octavian and Rosencavalier always fit very well. I haven't sung it in quite a while, so I, I, it's hard to say now. I really feel good in Eboli and Don Carlo, but I've only performed it once. And so I'm looking forward to doing that again. You know, I, I feel that the, the more richer, deeper characters, even villains, I sort of tend to be drawn to. A villain is always really exciting, right? Oh, so <laughs> much. Yeah. Oh, are so boring. I would hate to do ingenues all the time, like the memes. Well, that's one of the benefits, right, of, of being a mezzo is because you get sort of, you know, roles that are sort of, you know. Yeah, more, which is, uh, which is riches. Yeah, it's absolutely. I love that. Certainly, I think being in front of an audience can be incredibly exhilarating. Is there one particular moment in your performing career where it was it was just an incredible moment that you'll never forget? There's a couple. I'll say my first one ever was at the Arena di Verona. It was my opening performance in that role. And in the production, they had a double rigged stage, meaning it was sort of on a slant on a diagonal. And because the arena is so huge, this the set, the stage itself was huge. The set itself was huge. So I had to walk up, I don't know, 25, 30 sets of 30 stairs to get to the top of the set. And I was supposed to come in and mingle with the chorus and not really be seen by the audience, just sort of be there and then suddenly jump out of the crowd and sing my first line. So I had this wonderful, magical moment of walking up the stairs and being not known to be there, but being able to see all the candlelight in the audience because everyone has a little candle at the arena and be able to just take that moment in before beginning my performance. And then the rest was just a blur (laughs) because I was stepping in, I think in second or third cast, which meant I never rehearsed on stage. I only rehearsed in a rehearsal room. And so suddenly I found these chorus members and extras and supers who are saying, okay, now you go over to that guy. Okay, now I'm going to pick you up and spin you. Okay, now you need to go over and talk to that fruit seller. You know, it's just crazy. That was incredibly memorable. And then I think there was a transcending moment for me in Le Prophet. There was something about that opera that really touched me and that final scene, the final big scene that Fides sings, that everything just was sort of lined up in this one performance. And I, I felt like I could literally sing anything. I could hold a note forever. And I, and I had no nerves. I just was completely present in the moment. And I don't know why that night and I don't know why that role. Well, any performer, one never really knows when those moments come, right? And then they just do and you have to enjoy them and take advantage of them. For listeners that are not familiar with the Arena de Verona, it's an, it's an ancient Roman amphitheater. It's outside. It is, it is not small. It is wonderful. What is it like for a singer to perform in the open air as opposed to perform in a traditional opera house? Is there a difference? Do you have to change your vocal production? What's it like? It really depends on the venue. I would say in the arena, you have to just sing out. You have to really put out sound. It's not about the delicate pianissimo singing so much. I mean, unless you have a certain kind of sound making, for lack of a better word, that is incredibly resonant and and you get in just the right spot. There's one spot in the arena that is a sweet spot that if you can get there, it sort of rockets across the arena and it bounces off that wall that sticks up. And then it bounces back across all the other walls. And it's really, a, if you can find that spot, it's great. So that is one experience. But the acoustic, I have to say, is quite nice. 
the Corrigie d'Orange in France, that is also outside, but that is insane. It is so beautiful. It is such a joy to sing there. It is so, the acoustic is so excellent that during rehearsals, I made a mistake or tripped on something. I don't know what it was. And I said an expletive, whispered an expletive, and it went out over the entire <laughs> audience. There were just a few people in the rehearsal, but it's really, it's really incredible, that acoustic. But then there are places, you know, that are under tents or in sort of natural amphitheaters, and those can be challenging. And sometimes they need um, some kind of natural amplification. When I say natural, I mean the microphone's not right in your face. It's a little bit further away. That It just depends. Now, it said at the top of the uh, the interview that you and Lillian and I all share the fact that we are from Maine. And Lillian always felt that her New England upbringing gave her some strength in what she did and some resolve. And certainly, I think her mother, too, a kind of practicality. She really relied on her Maine roots and New England background. How does your own Maine background influence you? What would you say to that? Absolutely. I definitely think so. I was reading somewhere about how Lillian was very touched, very connected with nature and birds in particular. And I feel like the the connection with the natural world has a lot to do with it. I'm not, I'm not really sure why. It's almost like because of the fact that we didn't grow up in the city, we couldn't just go for external stimulation, going to the movies all the time and going to the theater and going to the to play video games or whatever. We had to make up our own stories in the woods. And I think that creativity that sort of wakes up something in the brain and it gets developed over time. And so we were really good at telling stories and making plays. <laughs> so that's what I ended up doing with my life. I was going to say, perfect training for an opera singer, right? Yeah, exactly. So in 1883, after she'd made this big success in, in Europe, Lillian actually returned to her hometown of Farmington, Maine. It was a big homecoming. It's what my mother would have called a cousin party back in the day. All of her relatives and everyone in town came together. And of course, she gave a concert. Did you have anything similar when you returned home to Maine after spending so much time in, in Europe studying and performing? Yeah, actually, I did. I came home and did a recital that was sort of like a benefit concert for the local library. <laughs> and um, I yeah, presented some of the arias that I had sung, that I performed the full operas. And yeah, it was wonderful. It was incredible to walk out and see almost every face there I recognized. I would say that was a lot of fun. For anybody thinking about a career in opera now, hopefully we've inspired some, I don't know. What's your best piece of advice for someone who's thinking about this world? Don't do it. Why? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Be ready to work very hard. Do not let failures bring you down. Let them teach you a lesson so that you can learn from that and move forward. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to feel vulnerable. Learn about budgeting. <laughs> be good with your financial stuff because the money comes in, but it also goes out very quickly. And because it's an irregular income, we don't have the stability. We don't have retirement funds and stuff. I think that's something that it's been buzzing around the Facebook world of opera singers have been saying, you know, it's a pity that we didn't, that wasn't part of our training. And I think they're starting to look at that now because in light of everything that happened with COVID, I think people are realizing the importance of that. 
For people that don't sing or know even much about the opera world and they sort of look at it from afar, what do you think is the biggest misconception that people might have about the life of an opera singer? Well, a lot of people think it's an incredibly glamorous lifestyle because we're traveling from this country to that country and meeting famous people and dining out, which there is an element of that. And that is fun. But that also can get old fast. It's not all glamour. It's being away from your family. It's having to sometimes make decisions for some people about whether or not they want to have children. For those who do have children, it's an incredible sacrifice on one end or the other. You're either feeling like I should be parenting or you're feeling like I should be studying. There's just always a conflict. And the homesickness, for sure, constantly being on the road, sometimes you just want your your things and always living out of a suitcase and being in an Airbnb, it gets tiring. And you have, you maintain your uh, homes in, in Maine, but also in Europe too. So you have both, right? A little bit of yeah. home sweet home wherever you happen to be. Yeah. I mean, it's, I couldn't be a greater contrast. I feel, you know, living in the, the center of Rome in Trastevere, which is like the crazy area of Rome. It's beautiful. Oh, I've stayed there. It's wonderful. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's amazing. And we love it. But then our summer, where we come in the summer, is to my house in Alna. It's in the boondocks. It's in the woods. Deer walk out in my backyard and walk right by me. And so it's kind of magical. And I love the contrast. I feel like I get fed one from the other. So when I'm here, I feel like, oh, okay, I've gotten my nature thing. And then I go back to Rome. Oh, the city life. Now, what are you working on now? You had mentioned earlier that you'd started to um, really focus on some French rarities and some lesser known French operas. What's what's on your plate these days? Well, so I'm working on a couple of different things that are still in the works, but my next job, I'm going to be doing an opera called De Janier by Saint-Saëns, and that will be with the Monaco Orchestra, Monaco Symphony Orchestra. And then I'm doing another piece called Ariane by Amasne, and that's later on in the season. And there are a couple other things that are sort of on the burners that I'll let you know about down the road. Please let us know here at The Gilded Gentleman because we would I would love to share that with my audience out there. And I want to finish up with what has really become a trademark Gilded Gentleman question of, of so many of my guests. And in this case, I'm going to bring it back to the subject of the um, this show, Lillian Nordica. And my question for you, Kate, is if you could really sit down with Lillian just the way we're sitting down here and ask her anything, what would it be? What would you want to know from her? I would be curious to know if she felt like she had two sides of the same coin of her main roots and her professional diva life traveling the world, because I feel like that's the way I personally feel. And I wonder if that's something that she felt the same way. I mean, it's hard to come home to Maine in this sort of diva way you you as soon as you land in for example in portland jetport in her case it would have been coming to boston harbor and then probably i don't know taking the, tra- the train north surrounded by trees and nature and cold weather and ice and slush and mud and if it would be hard to sort of maintain that sort of air so i'm curious if she had that same sort of feeling from what we know 
I'm going to bet she probably did. And it, from what I've read, too, it seems that Maine and Farmington and, and her roots really grounded her. That's certainly how I feel, having left Maine so many, many years ago and living in the middle of New York City and traveling around as I do. And you'd agree with that, too, right? There's a certain grounding quality to it, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like that's why I need to come home as often as I do, because I, I feel like I cannot not have those roots. I cannot ignore that side of the coin of myself. So, Kate, if you had a message for listeners, wherever they are, and my audience is truly international, whether they know much about opera or not, what would you say to them? I would say get out and support your local music organizations, um, theaters. We are all just hanging on by a thread right now after COVID, and the theaters are struggling, and so therefore the musicians are struggling, and we're all trying to keep it alive. And I think everyone got really comfortable and used to not going to live music and got really comfortable with watching it on television. But we need that energy of the audience in the house and we need to keep arts alive in our communities. Um, I think art is what keeps us, is what makes us human. It's what makes us different from animals. And I think without music, we become uncivilized, an uncivilized world. I couldn't agree more. And I also know from my own experience of doing so much virtually lectures and talks and and speaking as any performer, anybody just feeds on that energy and it and it it really creates a depth of a performance and an interpretation. And gosh, we hope those audiences get out there, right? Yes, absolutely. Kate, thank you so much for joining me today with this conversation. And thank you so much for joining the Gilded Gentlemen. I am so honored that you were here. Thank you so much. And thank you. It was a pleasure. It was really nice to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And with that, thank you, my listeners, for joining us today in our look on stage and backstage at the World of Opera. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite you to become patrons of the show at patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman.com. Your support truly helps me to be able to continue to do the show. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? <laughs> <laughs>